Hi, you're listening to the We Make Media Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Derricades. Today, I'm talking with Katerina Sizik, Emmy Award-winning digital documentarian. She directed the National Film Board of Canada's high-rise series on life in residential skyscrapers, which included the world's first 360 web documentary, Out My Window. I'll include the links in the show notes for all of you to enjoy this seminal work for which she received a Peabody. She is the artistic director, co-founder, and executive producer of the co-creation studio at MIT's Open Documentary Lab where she spent the last while interviewing hundreds of media makers for Collective Wisdom, a first-of-its-kind field study of the media industry that maps works that live outside the limits of singular authorship. Collective Wisdom is a hybrid field study that sets out to map, define, and shed light on the co-creation methods within media, arts, documentary, and journalism, and adjacent areas of knowledge, design, open source tech, urban, and community planning. I've asked her to talk to me today about the Collective Wisdom Study in the context of media literacy education and community arts. Hi, Katerina. How are you? Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me today. I'm so excited. to This This is an unbelievable undertaking and a really important project. Um, I want to get right into it because there's just so much. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> um, but maybe we could start by uh, you explaining what is co-creation, uh, as you've come to understand it from doing this work. And what are, if you can talk about the different types of co-creation that the study identifies? Sure. Thanks, Karen. Um, Yeah. So for us, co-creation really uh, at its simplest sort of unit of of understanding is anything, any kind of collective practices that um, live outside single authorship. So um, any projects that really are conceived, you know, there's, lo- there's things that are collaboration. It would be impossible to make a media project today without collaboration. But the difference between collaboration and co-creation for us is that collective authorship, that, that the idea and the process comes from the meeting and the, and the relationship of people rather than one person coming into a room with an idea that mm. then other people collaborate on. And contribute to, if that makes any sense. Uh, we came to sort of identifying typologies of co-creation just for the ability to speak about specific parts of it and, and, and methodologies. Uh, we talk about co-creation within communities, both in the real world, in person, but also within community uh, online. And those two are often together, but sometimes not and have their own specificities. Um, and then we also, the sort of the third category is co-creation uh, between disciplines and across organizations. So this could be within more scholarly or academic um, contexts where you have disciplines working with each other or perhaps cross-sectoral uh, in terms of organizations. So you have like uh, um, a type of professional organization, such an architecture firm working in co-creation with um, a filmmaker or a media maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final kind of more speculative type of co-creation that we look at in the report is the sense of co-creation with non-human systems. So human collabor- humans uh, working in perhaps, you know, is it co-creation to work with these larger systems, whether they be uh, planetary scale or cellular, like uh, um, artists working with slime mold. Um, and then sort of further on that spectrum is this notion of uh, co-creators working with technological systems, 
and ultimately artificial intelligence. And so in that in that section of the report, we interviewed over 30 artists, um, many of whom have been working with these systems for, for decades, and asked them about the relationship and, and how, how would they sort of place themselves on a spectrum of co-creation. And we were quite surprised with the results. Um, your report begins with talking about petroglyphs um, as a marking space with a kind of we were here as opposed to an I was here tag, and specifically how that represents a differing understanding of time, where the I was here being a singular moment in time that an individual kind of comes through a space and marks that moment, uh, and a we were here as telling a much larger story of collective humanity and culture. Can you talk a bit about why that aspect of time, like a specific moment versus a multi-generational long view, is so important to the sustainability of social change? that can come from co-creation? Wow, that's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, I think time and in particular this notion of deep time is really important for a lot of co-creators that we've spoken to around the world. Um, And I think uh, on the flip side of that is also this urgency of time. So uh, when we talk about these petroglyphs, the ones in particular that kept coming to mind for me were ones that I had the honor of uh, witnessing in Gobustan, Azerbaijan. And those are petroglyphs that really were, were marked and created over the course of what we believe now to be thousands of years. There's this um, collective imprint on the rock of humanity and of our collective story as a species. So, um, yeah, that intergenerational sense of you know, we are one, we, that we, you know, we don't stop and start with an individual life. We are part of a much larger system whether it be, uh, you know, a species-centered one or a planet-centered one. And thinking about our existence in that way, I think, is really interesting and important and critical uh, for many who uh, are working in particular in the climate crisis, um, uh, with, with climate crisis. And also in that, you know, that category of that typology of, of working with these larger systems. So what may seem like a, like a very long time, like this time we've spent sort of closing down our lives in, in the pandemic um, is really just a blip in time over this longer, longer world history. But then also a lot of co-creators talk about the flip side of that, which is the ability to urgently respond to what's actually happening in the present. So there's both being informed and animated by these larger questions of world time, but also having the flexibility, the humility and um, the nimbleness to address what's directly in front of us and not get bogged down by systems that might not really work for us right now. So a lot of people argue that part of the beauty of co-creation is coming up with systems that are both ancient and contemporary, and that a lot of what's happening in this century is that we're struggling with the shackles of systems from the 20th century that no longer, maybe perhaps never, served us and were trapped in them, whether they're sort of really, you know, highly sort of bureaucratic, technocratic, uh, colonial, industrial systems that that sort of manage our everyday and global experiences. So yeah, and I think um, also to that point of time, um, one one quote that really stuck with with me was um, our colleagues and friends in Detroit, in particular, the Detroit Narrative Agency that uh, that often refer to Grace Lee Boggs, who is this incredible activist, philosopher and writer on the Detroit scene who lived to about 101 years um, and uh, she always began every community meeting 
with the question, what time is it on the world clock? Hmm. And that really uh, resonates for me in terms of coming back to that question in our daily lives and rituals and, and in our ways of understanding what, what are we going to do with our day today? Interesting. Yeah. And this, you, you, you talked about, you touched a, b- a bit about the uh, ancient traditions and the study explains how co-creation is an ancient and under-documented dynamic. When did the emphasis on singular authorship come to dominate our thinking around creative process? That's a big question. And I think um, we've certainly had a lot, of, um, a lot of interesting conversations with people that uh, understand that that field of authorship and uh, in particular um, intellectual property. So these, you know, I think different kinds of historians and practitioners may market in different ways. In particular, this French notion of the auteur and les droits d'auteur, like the, the rights of the author. And so there's definitely different streams of it. But for us, what felt really appropriate is uh, something that my, uh, one of the co-authors, my co-author, uh, William Iricchio, who's a media scholar and um, a historian, uh, who is the principal investigator of uh, the studio and the lab at uh, MIT, he um, discovered very specifically in the literature the day in which the term producer was first used in theater. Um, and that's, you know, like 150 years ago. It's not that long ago. So in these sort of uh, theater, which uh, until that moment, you could argue, was a very collective practice. It was the troupe. It was the ensemble. It was something that many hands put together and put it on stage for many to witness and be part of. And the moment this producer emerged, um, the dynamics uh, and the decision-making structures radically transformed So you could kind of pinpoint that. You can also look at sort of in film history, how we started to formulate and industrialize uh, the process. Um, And then equally, you can start looking at a moment in um, the evolution of technologies. And of course, there's many different streams of technology that you can look at. And that's sort of what William does in his work is look at, trace these ongoing themes within the histories of specific technologies. But if you look at the history of digital technologies, um, you see very early on in, in, the, in the evolution of the internet and the web is this uh, very collective, decentralized um, philosophy and, and methodology of how this technology could, could work in the hands of many, many folks around the world. So it's yeah. both reigniting these ancient practices and then also uh, understanding what, what these uh, new technologies, uh, what affordances they have for us to reignite those, those instincts. Hmm. Yeah, well, you talk about the, the like equity and justice as being, you know, a facet of co-creation, like a part of that process of what that process looks like. Um, but also as a means that like co-creation as a, as a means for creating more equitable and just world. How so? How, how what's what's the observation that you guys have made there? We argue in the field report and having having spoken to over 160 people about it, that co-creation can't really exist without a framework of equity and justice. And if 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 we can't transparently understand and uh, critique and under, and and really um, understand a practice to be founded in equity and justice, it's not co-creation. 
So I think we do identify and we spend quite a bit of time um, both in our own practices, uh, but also speaking with, in, with others about the risks of co-creation. And we identified six of them. And, uh, you know, a big one is this co-optation, this risk of the term and this pr- the principles of co-creation being co-opted by bad actors. And we certainly see that word popping up here and there. In the Toronto context, it was used quite significantly by uh, Google and sidewalk labs Mm -hmm. in a very um, questionable way in terms of how they were going to be consulting with the communities and with the city and even with the governments. So, you know, people say, how can you tell if something is co-creation or not then in that framework? And there's lots of pretty, I think there's some pretty easy ways of uh, separating these things out. And one is, you know, transparency and ownership and, you know, how, how far do these things go? And if they sort of end at the first box that's been ticked, it's probably not co-creation. Right. Yeah. If it ends with listening. Well, yes, we listened to you. <laughs> we spent some time to bring you together and hear what you think. And then we're going to disregard it or do whatever whatever we wish. Yeah, and we see that process over and over again in a variety of sectors and particular colonialist practices. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly when I think of the just to bring it to to community arts a little bit. I mean, the in terms of you know, understand what you're talking about in reference to larger like media conglomerates and the idea of like bad actors. But it's interesting in a smaller context of like museums and and um, and galleries and the way that they've internalized those colonial narratives and the way that they perpetuate them. You know, same with this ancient thing that you're talking about, like this this idea that, oh, like indigenous or, you know, people don't have a word for art or whatever, right? <laughs> like this kind of old problematic uh, narrative and this kind of newness, like there's this kind of conversation like the, or at least for museums and galleries are moving into this kind of delivering programming, like arts programming with, entre guillemets, like in, in quotation marks with communities. But often bring those kinds of attitudes of not recognizing that people have been doing those things for a long time. And maybe they didn't have a, it's not that they didn't have a word for art. Maybe they didn't have a word for or a concept of this singular authorship. And that often, you know, this idea of this, of this practice, like this socially engaged practice or community engaged arts or these kinds of different terms that they use for it as being a new way of decentralizing power or expertise in a co-creation like workshop or dynamic as being you know really problematic um um term because then they often report on these activities and publish about these activities in ways that duplicate like again colonial narratives and kind of charitable savior ideas of like oh we've empowered this community by bringing them an arts experience so you know you you can call for funding supports for co-creation and and more process driven artistic explorations right this is something that that you identify as important obviously to supporting um co-created works um what best practices are paramount to building those supports um in ways that don't seek to co-opt the work and take ownership for these dynamic processes like what can what can these institutions or these well-intentioned individuals be considerate and thoughtful about um should they be going for such funding or receiving such funding when 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 doing um supporting co-creative processes yeah it's a huge question um and there's no 
one solution fits all. And I think that that's part of the frustration that sometimes people feel with co-creation, because it really, you know, if it becomes too prescriptive or too formulaic, then it's very definition, maybe it's less co-creative. And and so uh, it also takes time. It's, It's messy. It's a really complicated process. And again, it's not boxes, not not that you're suggesting this, I'm just reiterating, I think what Mm -hmm. you're saying is, um, you know, you don't just tick a bunch of boxes and you're done. Mm -hmm. It's about really... uh, you know, whether it's starting a pro and, and, and there might be really different processes based on where you're at and where you're, who you're thinking of or who you're hoping to co-create with, as opposed to sort of an institution that's looking to open up some of uh, their practices or their funding. And that might involve like a real sort of turning inside out of what people have done um, historically. So it really is more than just, um, a consultation process and, and then going back to business as usual, it requires profound systemic change. And that's where people kind of stop short. <laughs> often, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, are, are those things really on the table? And uh, that's certainly what we've encountered, too, is just, um, it feels like a lot to change. Um, that said, I think, these things are happening, whether individuals or institutions or even governments want to accept it or not. I think what we've seen in the last two or three months on a global scale, um, in terms of thinking about how are we going to survive and perhaps even thrive in the future, if we can do that, if that's still on the table, is going to require radical global scale um, and um, a rethinking of what are the distinct units of agency in the world. So, you know, even science, you've seen incredible transformation, you know, and it's not always completely positive either, but, uh, you know, there's there's so many consequences to these kind of radical shifts. But in science, uh, what has happened to address COVID on a global scale and the kinds of systems that have fallen away in this quest to find treatment, to find um, management and the race to find a vaccine has actually been really fascinating to see. Like suddenly, you know, notions of ownership and uh, intellectual property have fallen away in this, you know, um, and the kinds of information that labs are sharing with each other. Um, the kinds of Zoom calls that we're hearing scientists have with each other daily or weekly, it's that's unprecedented scale of co-creation in medical research anyway. Uh, same for public programs, right? I mean, we hear, we're hearing, you know, these, these things that never would have been possible <laughs> six months ago suddenly are. So um, those to me are huge acts of co-creation, but they require, they do require a, a, that, like we were talking about earlier, this notion of urgency and crisis and scale that we certainly could have foretold and perhaps we could have planned for in a different way. Right. I mean, it's interesting, yeah, because you're talking about the beginning of, of how um, complicated and in wonderful ways like collective or, or co-creation can be, right? Like that if anybody's ever worked in an actual collective organization that runs as a collective like there's you know like it takes longer to get stuff done right because you've decentralized the power but when you're talking about these large institutions that have almost like overly complicated uh their hierarchy or their or their the barriers that they've built in and yeah how quickly in an emergency apparently some of those aren't necessary aren't as necessary as um as they might have uh previously 
spent time justifying. So again, we keep coming back to this, like, you know, this long-term, short-term relationship. In the, uh, in the section about humans collaborating with AI, they have the very interesting question of whether co-creation requires equivalent agency, which I think is, you know, just a, a great way of thinking about all forms of co-creation and something I think about on a regular basis in terms of just how power dynamics, like what power dynamics exist when, when working with communities um, in arts, in just in arts workshops. But definitely it seems to me anyways that, that, it, that it requires some kind of, you know, informed consent and agency. And for, so for me, like that AI is not, I see that as more of um, a way of like an artist or creative cloning themselves or, you know, giving themselves extra arms, but they're, they're the ones who are running the, the algorithm or the, or telling the thing what to do. And there's no, there's none of that feedback loop that you talk about um, and that we talk about in participatory media in general that's so important in the sense that you might create stuff with AI, but the AI is not giving any pushback, giving any challenge uh, to that process. Um, or in the report, someone said uh, AI creates but is not creative. Can you talk about the role that feedback loops play in participatory media creation? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in in, in that question that you've just <laughs> posed. And I guess I can start at the beginning where you said there's, you know, this notion of equal agency. Co-creation doesn't equalize agency. It doesn't expect or even, you know, you could argue is it even possible to have equal agency. So I think it exposes in its best form, it actually exposes and makes evident the inequalities in processes. People have different stakes in a project. Um, They have different energy that they can contribute to a project. You know, some people are working uh, you know, double jobs and have kids. Others are, you know, especially in the like in this pandemic time, you really see it. You know, the people who are living alone and trying to find things to do, uh, as opposed to the ones that are just drowning in the overwhelming responsibilities to family, to health, to work, to community, to showing up for the movement, all those kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and struggling with the materiality of, you know, losing work and losing homes and, and so. And, and those are all evident in all processes. Those are all there, um, but they're not always evident. And so I think at its best, co-creation exposes them and demands us to acknowledge them and talk about them, not just once, but as a dynamic part of any kind of process of working together. So um, that's the first thing I would say in terms of <laughs> agency and even ownership of a project. Some people, you know, come in and out of a project and that's, you know, Finding room for that and and being open to that can be really challenging sometimes, but also really important. And then I would argue that uh, with the artists that we spoke to regarding artificial intelligence, we were quite surprised at how many did say that it is a co-creative process and that the feedback loop, in particular over decades, in particular artists who have worked with this kind of technology over decades have seen an increasing amount of feedback loop possible from these systems that Mm -hmm. for them really feel like it's not just a tool. It's not just, I don't just paint, no, I don't just do a brushstroke knowing what that brushstroke is going to result in. There is this level of mystery and unexpectedness and a feedback where, and, and the unpredictability because the system keeps evolving that slides it towards co-creation. And that doesn't 
give agency to the machine. It doesn't, it's not, and, and it also like, I think what we're trying to address or perhaps question in the report is this notion of, you know, what is intelligence? And if we're just equating intelligence to human intelligence, we're really missing a much larger piece of the planetary puzzle, which is that there are different kinds of intelligence. Um, and that human intelligence, as Jason Lewis, one of the uh, scholars and artists that we, indigenous scholars and artists that we interview, he quotes um, uh, Little Bear saying, you know, that human intelligence is just one channel on the dial. And that's mm-hmm. the one we're tuned into. And that there's this all this other stuff going on. And what Jason and his colleagues in a really interesting article about making kin with the machines is uh, suggests that we might do better equating artificial intelligence to non-human intelligence as opposed to human mm-hmm. intelligence. And so in that framework, co-creative relationship between humans and non-humans having being in relationship with these larger systems that we do not control, that we need to exist with. Is, a, is kind of a really interesting way to think about, uh, as you said, an art that is perhaps beyond these very uh, limited notions of art. Mm. Yeah, the, I mean, it's interesting what you say about the co-creation um, in terms of people giving different things t- uh, to a group um, or to a project based on their capacity or skill or interest. I remember I was once facilitating a facilitation 101 workshop for the Ontario public research group um, and someone had asked you know like what do you do when you've, you're working with the group and people have agreed to do certain things and they haven't done them and you know how can you get people to complete their work kind of thing and I was like you could try meditation <laughs> like you could you know like there's not really you can't really force somebody to complete a certain piece of work though we could shift the way that we think about group work and again i think about this constantly in the in the um dynamics of schools because we put give children assignments to work in groups and often there's this idea of this like equal pie chart um that everybody will have to do equal parts and but really it's just this like experiment in power dynamics because of course there's power dynamics in any group and as you were saying maybe that that co-creative process actually you know surfaces those and then it becomes about that like it becomes about navigating those things like uh how do you speak up for yourself how do you not be you know uh do all the work for a group or you know to take it advantage of or these kinds of things as opposed to the actual group work and um, I often wonder about how we can adapt or adopt this more like wiki idea of group work um, in terms of those some people contribute a lot of people on the you know like Wikipedia the main contributor might contribute like 90% of it and someone else is putting in one little piece and someone else is putting in another larger piece and and also relates to consent culture in terms of how we um, let people bring or give what they can. Do you see these possibilities that the internet presents us with being integrated into kind of everyday group dynamics? Um, if we delve deeper and get to know co-creation more, is that, a, is that a goal? Is that a desire of your study and of the co-creation studio? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, co-creation is not going to solve everything. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's also, people tend to dismiss it as being like, oh, you know, it's too uh, utopic and naive and it's just not the way, you know, the law works, for example, or so, yeah, and and, and it's not for every process and every project. And there is a place for single authorship, particularly in the context of 
you know, um, making sure there's verifiable facts and sourced material, you know, um, I mean, you know, there's lots of big questions around how disinformation and misinformation on fueled by uh, the particular infrastructure of the web that we know it as today, uh, how we've gotten here, but it's really a problem. It's huge. So um, we're not saying, you know, wipe out single authorship or this is the only way forward. It's really more about just nuancing and uh, complicating and opening up our toolboxes for understanding there are many specter of ways to to work together and contribute to the discovery process and in particular, our, our quest to, towards collaboration and justice and building equity. Right. And you talk about the shifting norms around co-creation in the internet age. Um, how does the internet complicate ideas of co-creation? And what is unique about that process online versus offline? Well, both the, the, you know, the collapsing of distance and time and how both synchronous and asynchronous uh, ways of working together become available and not available too, right? And accountability, you know, I think that there's something about when you're in person and you're living, you know, if you're if you're within community and you're living together, you have different stakes uh, that are less immediately evident online. There's an anonymity to it that can be uh, both liberating, but also very, um, can be weaponized. You talked about the importance of media literacy in terms of like knowing how media are constructed as we move into a world of deep fakes and, and struggle with like post-truth realities. Can you tell me a bit about that? About you talk a bit, a bit about media literacy and the role that it plays in the political climate online and Sure. I mean, a lot of the work that we're doing at Co-Creation Studio and Open Documentary Lab, we're framing as um, that we're living in a time of profound epistemological crisis. And crises, maybe even like it's multiple, multiple crises of knowing how we, you know, how do we know what we know and what are the frameworks on which and under which and with which we uh, mediate our realities, our social contexts, our behavior, our actions, and even our vision for what's possible. And, and we try, we try to frame this within, you know, media practices. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk around, you know, there's, and we're, 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 Deep fakes is one area that we have a lot of interest in, and, and we have some fellows that are creating a really interesting project um, in, in deep fakes. And we're also partnered with witness.org, which is a longtime colleagues and friends of mine um, around deep fakes. And so there's, you know, how do we how do we deal with deep fakes? And there's, you know, there's technology. So there's all these sort of techno solutionist approaches. Well, we have a, well, let's build an app for that. Let's, let's build apps that can detect how, you know, can detect, I mean, we've seen them now online, you know, like they mm. show what part of an image has been Photoshopped, for example, or can detect, you know, sound that's been warped. But, you know, as, uh, as any kind of critique of techno solutionism is that for every techno solution we, we come up with, the hackers are one step ahead. There's always a way of working around that latest attempt to to reveal a, ha- a hack, right? So it's right. sort of a self-fulfilling uh, race, sort of a, a, a tale that's spinning out. Not to say that those technologies aren't important and we have to pursue some of that, but that's not going to solve everything. 
And then you've got the pop- Sorry, can you break that down just a little bit? So it's an, it's a type of app where you would have to, let's say you run across some content online and you wanted to know if it was fake, you would have to upload it to the app kind of thing? Or Yeah, so a lot of the platforms are pursuing and doing a lot of R&D flagging. in this sort of uh, techno-solutionist approach, which is hmm. to sort of run anything that would appear on their platforms through these kinds of software systems or artificial intelligence systems that can detect technologically uh, manipulated image or sound, right? So that's one approach to deepfake. Like, how are we going to solve deepfake? How are we going to get out of this problem, <laughs> right? So that's- And how do they, I'm just curious as a, as a new media artist, like how do they, like, because a lot of images and sounds are manipulated. How do they distinguish in terms of how manipulated or what, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean- I Well, mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> filter like you know right like yeah okay there's there's sort of you know the the jawline's been shortened or Mm. the waist has been thinned okay we can discover those things or we can discover the 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 kind of motion that a mouth is making or the blinking of the eye or the hairline you know those are those are places we can look to for obvious technological manipulation but then it's like the in and the out and the context of the in and the out of an edit what's in the frame what's outside of the frame there's so many Mm -hmm. more even just from a very technical perspective that those things are never going to catch and also a contextual framework right like what's not in the image that we need to know in order to understand what this image is you know do, do we does the date on an image help us understand what's going on in the image, all the meta tagging, all that kind of stuff. How are we going to actually create techno solutionist approaches that are going to be valuable in you know, putting a red X or a green check beside an image before I consume it as a, as a user, right? That's one. Then there's like a policy approach, which is regulation and sort of outlawing this stuff. And like, so then there's that whole sort of legal like legal approach, um, which seems a little bit decentered or, or focusing on the wrong thing. And again, it's going to be a game of catch up, right? So there's like sort of the technological approach, the legal approach, and then this third approach, um, and we probably need a little bit of all of it. But like, then this third approach is media literacy is, is really making sure that we better understand um, how media works. And this, and then this stops being about a deep fake, which is really just the tip of an iceberg. Mm-hmm. And under that is our shallow fakes and this huge, massive world of dismiss information on which dis- the deep fakes rely, right? Like deep fakes do not just function on their own. They are part mm-hmm. of a much larger ecosystem. And a part of that ecosystem is people not thinking critically. That's right. So, um, yeah, so that's, I guess, that would be my answer to sort of why media literacy is important, in particular within the context of beat fakes, but a much broader context of fake news and even these sort of epistemological crises that we're finding ourselves in, the, the profound polarization of opinions and views and understanding what we see and how we see, how we see it and what it means and how we mirror that off the communities that we think matter to us the most. Collective Wisdom asks the question, how do we share the world with each other um, in reference to the commons? The, the commons is such a massive concept. 
So do you want to explain? <laughs> can you t- can you talk a bit about what are the commons and uh, what of the process of co-creation uh, with multiple, often anonymous authors of individuals who are sharing materials up online? Yeah, I think we're we're thinking more about along the lines of the public and uh, the commons, as in reclamation of the commons. So um, both in terms of resources on the planet and understanding how do we share what we've got left on the planet for the stuff that's that's still here and that can be as you know as complex as the water and the air that we breathe um and then you know common space right land um cities infrastructures i think that's the way we were thinking about it and then you know the common you know the commons in terms of the way the web understands it is problematic and and really complex in the age of um, Facebook, Apple, Google, uh, Netflix, Amazon. <laughs> um, you've got these uh, you know platforms that um, have completely dominated and taken over uh, the way that we're able to function online. And it's the biggest threat to democracy and to the planet, as far as I'm concerned. You know, we were seeing. Um, Places like the Philippines, where Facebook is now equated with the internet. I mean, people don't have another way. Of, there is no, There is nothing else on a mass scale in the Philippines. I mean, it is Facebook. That's that's people's access to the web. So when you're looking at that kind of that scale of domination um, with no regulation, that that is a huge, huge bad actor and <laughs> a precedent and that is our key problem so yeah who knew that the monster the media moguls now are like so much more monolithic and huger than we could have ever thought compared to what we're talking about with the you know media conglomerates of of before so how do we how do we deal with that problem that is that is one of the biggest problems of our time and especially leading up to these elections coming up shortly in the states Which again is a media literacy issue, I guess, right? I mean, in terms of like people understanding like where you are getting stuff from, or I mean, I do a lot of um, search and find conversations with young people in schools, and that the stock has gone up on that in the last three months. I'll tell you that. Um, before teachers were kind of like, this is not relevant, um, and now everybody's like, please, you know. But a lot of the, the the young people, yeah, I mean, it was just interesting. They what they think google is or where that stuff comes from or how it gets compiled and yeah they had a lot of questions of is google a scam (laughs) it's also like isn't google didn't people upload that all to google you know these these kind of conflating of these like of these platforms versus the internet versus um yeah, understanding how these things are categorized and, and, the, and the commercial interests, of course, behind them. Um, yeah, a lot of people would argue that we need to go beyond media literacy at this point and talk about algorithmic literacy. There's a level at which uh, it's not enough to understand things in their static form, uh, but people mm-hmm. need to understand uh, what procedural logic is and how algorithms uh, change as we put things in them. And what are the things that we put into them and how do they operate and bring things back to us? And that, that's really tough. That's a really, really hard, that's, that's high level 
Yeah, because it's not as fixed as old. Yeah, we can't talk about style guides or 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 yeah, because it's constantly the constantly internet in is motion. a thing. Yeah, constantly in motion and and really hidden. Like we don't even know mm-hmm. most of this stuff. I mean, the engineers talk about the science being black box ish. You know, I don't know if that's part of mm-hmm. the marketing around it, perhaps. But there is there is a notion of a black box that you know these algorithms are creating things that we are so we you know the engineers themselves can't even understand what happens, mm-hmm. um, and then on top of that you've got these murky wild market systems that completely obfuscate uh, the business plans and the choices that these uh, platforms are able to make w- outside of uh, public eyes and scrutiny. And then you have the epistemological crisis and this fog of reality. So we just, we can't, you know, if you just, that's just a three portions of the stack of complete uh, opaqueness of, of these systems that we're trying to deal with. You, you've, we've been talking a bit about, I mean, the term multidisciplinary. I don't know if, uh, and the term antidisciplinary. I love um, MIT uh, Media Labs um, use of that term. Can you talk a bit about what antidisciplinary means? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a notion at the Media Lab in their hiring practices, uh, where the the former director Joey Ito, who um, left uh, under very complex circumstances with his um, relationship uh, exposed relationship with Jeffrey Epstein in, mm-hmm. in September, um, and uh, certainly the Media Lab is going through a reckoning and a much needed one uh, and also MIT. I just want to put that out there. That's, that's mm-hmm. very much part of the story. And we're not part of the media lab, just so you know, we're in a, uh, while we have many colleagues and friends of the media lab, we're actually in a different part of MIT. So structurally right. media lab is within architecture Right. And we're within the humanities department. So there's no funding or um, sort of official connections that way. There's the misunderstanding because we're called Open Documentary Lab that that was right. the Media Lab. So just to... And because, yeah, MIT Media Lab is such a massive... Yeah, and it's such a yeah. massive brand and uh, mm-hmm. legacy and uh, complex history. But um, what we're specifically uh, referring to when we talk about their notion of anti-disciplinary... And we find it interesting because uh, when we started talking about co-creation across disciplines, you know, you have interdisciplinary, you have cross-disciplinary, you have a transdisciplinary, you have all these terms that sort of uh, come up against each other in some way. Um, and then you, there's this notion of anti-disciplinary. So, uh, and the cross-disciplinary is that people are staying in their lanes, but they're sort of uh, driving in the same direction and working together. Antidisciplinary suggests that there is this space that's beyond the disciplines. So um, it's it's not even in, in those lanes anymore. Those lines are disappearing. And in specifically for the Media Lab, what they've always said is that they recruit, they, they look for people that can't even identify with the discipline, that are going to have a really hard time, for example, being hired by a conventional engineering program or whatever biology department or because their work is so outside of that that convention um so that's what they kind of really uh looked for and built up around mm-hmm. um the practices at and and the mythology around the media lab 
Right. It's not it's not the solution for everything either. You know, I mean, I've heard a lot of really good arguments about not taking away all disciplines and how how uh, how detrimental that can be to discovery and to mm. Because there's a lack of framework there in terms of in terms of thinking of disciplines within their own capacity and sure there's there's lots of great uh, lots of great arguments against against it as you know mm. a, a one model that would fit all and uh, I think what we're suggesting is just that uh, particularly within university settings but across all sectors um, is like creating space for a multiplicity of practices uh, and uh, multiplicity of ways of doing things. Like in some cases, a certain kind of specialization and research into that is really, really legitimate and really important. And what's uh, what's next for the Collective Wisdom Project and and, and the and the Open Documentary Lab? Uh, well, we're well, um, all of MIT has been shut down, as you as you probably know, as as all universities uh, moved radically to a <clears throat> sort of distance learning, remote, uh, virtual uh, setting. Uh, MIT was one of the first in the States in North America to do so. And our lab, of course, went into that mode as well. And it's just been fascinating to see what's been rendered possible by it. And uh, so our lab has continued to meet in a virtual setting. A lot of people went home, you know, left Cambridge. I don't live there. I live in Toronto. So I've always been remote. So it's been fascinating to see the rest of the world sort of change to the reality that I've lived for quite some time. So, but it's, you know, that said, it's been a radical shift. And now it's like figuring out what has worked. And uh, so we'll continue online. We have public lectures on Tuesdays that are, are incredibly popular. And we've done them, we did them in residence and videoed them and put them online. But now doing them live, you know, as a webinar has been really popular. This is from the Open Doc Lab. That's right. Um, and Co-Creation Studio has done every Tuesday during the academic year. That's right. Um, and so at the Co-Creation Studio specifically, we have an Indigenous digital uh, delegation. It's a partnership with the Indigenous Screen Office here in Canada. Um, we were set to have 13 Indigenous media scholars and artists come uh, to be in residence with us on campus to exchange um, ideas and projects and knowledge within the context of Indigenous um, epistemologies, artificial intelligence, and digital worlds, that, uh, you know, we weren't able to do that in April. We did virtualize some of it then, and we're going to continue with it throughout the fall. So that's one of our big projects. Um, as I said, we have a partnership with um, with Witness on deep fakes, And uh, yeah, we have a collaborative project in the works with our fellows. We have a whole bunch of stuff going on. Um, so it's one of the good things to do is to sign up for our newsletter. That way, when there's news, you get it <laughs> in your mailbox. And otherwise, we do have our websites, the Open Documentary Lab, and uh, the Co-Creation Studio has its own website as well. And uh, more to come with the report uh, soon. Well, thank you so much, uh, Katerina, for talking to me today. The work is so wonderful, and there's so many great projects. I hope everybody checks it out. There's so many um, wonderful uh, co-creative projects uh, that they highlight in the report. It's not your average report. It's stunning. Thank you so much for all the great work you're doing with uh, the youth and um, for such a deep reading of the study. We're honored. Great to hear that somebody's reading it. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for your, for your great questions. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of We Make Media. 
Join me on the next episode when I speak with Project Information Literacy's Barbara Pfister about what we think we know about algorithms, the death of expertise, and which generation is struggling to navigate information systems the most. Until then, stay creative and do be artists.